Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Manners Masterclass. Now, today, my biggest challenge as an interviewer with this guest is knowing really where to focus on because he's lived such a full life and achieved so much on and off the field. I'm talking about my guest, former Australian fast bowler, Mike Whitney. Nice to be here, Andrew. Welcome, Mike. Uh, it's, it's been busy. It <laughs> has been busy. And look, I'm so thrilled to have just a, not just a great cricketer, but a, a broadcast professional here with me. I mean, I can almost just let you sort of go because I know you've achieved so much. But, you know, when I sort of, I thought that what was written about you when you achieved the Order of Australia or were given it in 2019 really sums up sort of the full and rich life you've had. And this was what was written. Whitney was acknowledged for his service to the broadcast media, most notably as the main presenter of Sydney Weekender on the Seven Network for the last 24 years at the time. The former fiery left-arm quick was recognised not only for his enormous contribution to cricket as a player for Australia, New South Wales and his club, Randwick Petersham, but also as an administrator. Now, that also leaves off the fact that you're a, a musician uh, you help save the bunnies. I mean, how have you packed it all in, Mike? When I was growing up in Matraville, Andrew, Matraville was a, I'm not going to say it was a low ball sub, it was a hard working, um, there wasn't a lot of wealth there. And a lot of people would say that if you come from a suburb like that, Maroubra, La Perouse, Chifley, not much for you. You're going to end up working at the ICI chemical factory or drive a truck like my father did out at the Boral Oil Refinery or you're going to work at the paper mills down at Matraville. Well, no, not for me. And I had some inspiring people around me. Like my first first-grade captain was Alan Turner who played test cricket for Australia. He scored the first one-day century for Australia in the 75 World Cup. So that ranks as the first one-day 100 and the first World Cup 100. Wow. He was very inspiring. Um, Russell Fairfax, uh, the great union rugby league player, was there as well. There was a couple of people around there and I kept thinking, and, and of course the South Sydney Rabbitohs. Um, Paul Sait, I would see running the garbage on the Ramwick Council. I'd see John O'Neill and Gary Stevens, who had a carpentry business, a building business, working on houses in my local area. And my dad would say, oh, you know, Lurch and, and that are just around the corner working on a house. Do you want to go around and see them? They were huge inspirations to me. So the thing, look, when I went down to Randwick, I got invited a few times. I didn't really want to go. I just wanted to go surfing on a, a Saturday morning and play with my mates on the mats in the afternoon for fun for Botany United. But Lyle Gardner, um, the secretary of Randwick at the time, kept ringing my place. And my mother said, my father had just passed away with cancer when I was 16. My mother said, this gentleman won't ring this house again. You'll go down to this Randwick and you'll, you'll see what goes on. Thanks, Mum. Yeah, well, I didn't realise at the time, but I got – there was only four grades in those days. There was no fifth grade. So I got sort of wrangled into the third or fourth game of the year at Snape Park in fourth grade. I took four for 16 or something like that, and that day changed my life forever. So as I moved through, I kept thinking that all these things that people had said about coming from Matraville weren't true as long as you put in, were dedicated, had a great club to play for and had family support and took it all on, that maybe at the end of the rainbow there might be a bit of success. And that's what happened to me at Randwick. If it wasn't for those gentlemen down there, Lowell Gardner, Alan Turner, the great journalist, the late great Phil Tresseter, 
uh, and probably another 20 blokes I could mention that nurtured me and taught me the game, um, I don't know where I'd be right now. I mean, I often say to, to, to young people I'm coaching that, you know, cricket will, you know, it really teach you about life. And, and it sounds like it, it did. It gave you that, uh, you know, uh, education about hard work, discipline. You know, if you put in, you'll often get results. And, boy, I mean, did it work out for you? I think, look, I was very lucky that I was always encouraged and I was a decent athlete from a young child. I did little athletics. I was a state long jump, triple jump champion. I was quite a fast runner. I got to play with the Ella brothers, Mark and Glenn at La Perouse Rugby League for 10 years. And I just saw them doing bizarre stuff that I thought everybody else could do. Mm. And then I realised that, no, only the Ellers <laughs> can flick the ball backwards and over their head or dribble it through or kick a banana kick at age 10. I was seeing Mark and Glenn Ella doing these kicks at age 10 and 12, which you see players do now in, in, in the NRL. Wow. It was just – it was amazing. So I uh, played rugby league and that's what I want to do. I mean, all of our dream living in that area was to play for the Rabbitohs. They were the biggest inspiration. Cricket was something that we did – on the sideline, but that day, that one day. So look, when I was, when so you got you got that thirst for wickets. I did. I I was just so absorbed with the fact I had to play in long whites and borrow a pair of of spikes. I didn't have long whites or spikes, and I had to borrow those to play that game. And it was really cool being in spikes, like bowling on a turf wicket mm. at Snape. But I had more ambition to play rugby league at that time, so I was doing the summer winter thing. Um, but the cricket, I, I went through the grades very, very quickly. In four years, I'd gone from playing fourth grade to first grade and won three premierships on the way, and my bowling had contrib- contributed to those winning those premierships. So then I sort of had to make a decision which way I wanted to go because I'd been picked in a couple of, um, you know, Rabbitohs trial games and stuff like that, and I really loved my rugby league, which is the other story why I got involved <laughs> with South many, many years later. Um, but I... What what decide what what pushed you towards cricket in the end? I had my first knee operation. Um, I'd torn a cartilage playing rugby league, and I clearly remember the doctor saying, "Your knees won't stand up to rugby league, so you should." And I was already playing first grade, so you in in the cricket, so you should play first grade. I had another eight knee operations from cricket <laughs> after <laughs> that, and now two full knee replacements only 10 months later. So clearly that surgeon had no idea yeah. what he was talking about. But I did give the rugby league away age 20 and really concentrated on the cricket, and that just moved me through the grades quickly. And before I knew it, um, in 1980, I got picked in the, in the shield side after playing only half a season of first grade. But I'd made a pretty big impact in that half a season. I'd broke a couple of arms and <laughs> take a couple of big hauls. And we actually played in the final that year against Penrith out at Penrith. And, uh, yeah, I knocked a few of guys over in that game, including John Benno, Richie's brother, oh, yeah. who was captain of Penrith at the time. And we won that premiership. So I'd burn on a bit of a roll um, for the years, those first four, four years I was at Randwick. It was amazing. It's interesting you speak about your, you know, interested in playing rugby league and long jump. I always remember how athletic you were and fit you were at the highest level. And this is not, but, you know, people, it wasn't as a bigger priority then. You know, you didn't have to, you could be cricket fit, they used to call it, which means as long as you could run a three, um, yeah. you know, in the last session you were fit enough. Um, but you stood out as being someone that, you know, was always at the top of your game. 
Yeah, trained really hard. Uh, always had been a, a dedicated trainer and I had that sort of athletics background, a little athletics. So I was a runner. I had no problem pre-season running 10 or 15K and then as the season got short, uh, got closer, running shorter distances, harder distances, faster, up and down hills for your cardiovascular. Never had a problem training. In fact, I remember about 10 years into my cricket career, I thought, do I play so I can train or do I train so I can play? I just love training that much. I loved it. And I was really lucky when I got in the um, the New South Wales team that Jeff Lawson was already in that side and Henry was a very, very dedicated trainer as well, trained really, really hard. So I had a partner that I could do a bit of running with. And as those seasons moved on, the team started to train harder. The st- team started to get more physical. They started to stretch more. I'd always been a fanatical stretcher. They started stretching more and the conditioning was getting better and we were having these fitness tests prior to the season starting. None of that happened in my early first couple <laughs> of years. So I really soaked all that up and wanted to be the fittest, the fastest, the strongest, all this. Because I had a thought in my first season, which I played four games and I was 12th man for five because we only played nine games in those early years. Tasmania were not a full member of the Shield, which was a bit weird. <laughs> So we only played them once. But I knew there was bowlers out there that were much better than me at the time. And I thought the only way that I could get on some parity with them is to be fitter than them and be able to bowl 30 overs, 25 overs, or 25 overs in a day. And that's a lot of bowling. Mm. You know, you're bowling three hours. Like it's really an hour in each session. To be able to do that, you've got to be really fit. And the most important spell is that last one the last hour, they're either going to get 50 or 60 or 80 runs off you because you're failing and you just jag. You've seen this, Andrew. Mm. Or you're going to knock one or two over and set them right back on the hills. So I trained to bowl that last spell. I knew I was going to get through the first two, but that last one was so important that I wanted to be in their face, still running in, bowling quick and not, not putting my side as a disadvantage by not being fit and failing in that last spell. So that was always my motivation, and I, yeah, I tried to be as fit as I could. Oh, that's what the cap, the captain's dream, of motoring in in that last session. So, a, f- a phenomenal career at the highest level, 118 first class matches, 412 wickets, at an average of 26.75, incredible record. Played 12 tests for Australia, 39 wickets, average of just under 34. And 38 one-day internationals at a time when it was really difficult to get into that team. They basically picked the test side. Uh, 46 wickets at one-day international level. Quite a record. Now, your best day at test cricket came in 91-92 when you claimed seven for 27 in the second innings against India. Little-known player by the name of Sachin Tendulkar caught Moody, bowled Whitney, 114. People have talked about that in his obsession as being a real coming of age for him. He got to bowl against, you know, one of the greatest batsmen in history. I mean, when we go through your career, actually, you know, you played against some of the real stars of the game. But just tell us just a bit about Sashin. What was it like bowling to him and what do you remember about that hundred? He I've spoken to him about that hundred. He regards that as his best dig or one of his best hundreds ever. I suppose because of the age he was, it was his first tour out here. He must have only been 19 or 20. But there'd been noise about him already 
And believe it or not, I'd played a season in England in 1990 and I played for a club called Haslingdon in the Lancashire League. And I got asked to play in Michael Parkinson's World Eleven. Parky's World Eleven? Parky's World Eleven. Yeah. And uh, it was against India. So the World Eleven was picked every year and they played the game against the touring. So I think in 83 I played in Brian Close's World Eleven. We played New Zealand. But this one was against India. And I knocked Sachin over. He got, did he get 50 or 100? I can't remember, but he got runs in that. And I knocked him over just before that milestone with an in-swinging Yorker. And it was no ball. And then the next ball or two, he got the 50 or the 100. I'd always remembered that, but he was very young. That was only 1990. But, wow, this is the kid they're talking about. Well, fast forward a season or two, he's out here with India and I'm playing. So I play the first game in Brisbane and I knock him over with an in-swinging Yorker. <laughs> yes, there you <laughs> go. Because I remembered. remembered. And Actually, that's the, when I thought about you bowling, I always remember your in-swinging Yorker. And that was a beauty, <laughs> that one. But we go through and we get to Perth and he'd had a pretty good year and he'd, he'd made some runs in, in test cricket and in one-day cricket. And in that... He was phenomenal in that innings. And that was one of my greatest games. I took four in the first innings and that's seven for 27 in the second innings. Uh, they had a really good side then. They had very, very good players. And uh, and I was like 32, 33. Then I was coming to the back end of my career, but definitely bowling the best I'd ever bowled. The sad thing about getting older as a bowler is that if you've been playing for 10 years or more, your skill level and your mental strength and ability to dissect information and what you're going to do and plan is at its peak. But your body's starting to fail. And you go, oh, I wish I was 20 and I knew all this shit now. Let's you James Anderson. Yeah, well, that's it. So, He's a freak. You know, I was, I was at my best in those between 90 and sort of 94 when I retired and I was, I was getting older and, and physically starting to fail. but. I had really good control and and that was, uh, how would you think you'd been playing for 10 or 12 years? And I walked off that day um, really proud. And now I think about knocking Sachin over a couple of times in that series, I'm really proud of that as well because, like we said, he went on to be one of the all-timers. And when Sir Donald Bradman's saying, well, he looks a little bit like me when he bats, I mean, that's not a bad <laughs> rap, that, is it? And he was a fabulous player. He's such a... Look, I've seen Sachin a few times after we both retired and he's such a humble dude for someone who carried the weight of one billion people on his shoulders every time he walked out. I mean, I those subcontinent players, how do you do that? You know, if Sachin got 100, I used to hear these things, if Sachin got 100, the gross domestic product of India went up for three or four days. <laughs> everybody's dancing and stoked and India's won a series or a test on the back of Sachin. And he, you know, to handle that, guys like Kapil as well and, you know, Coley now, they're just these mega stars over there and they can't go out anywhere. To handle that pressure and still still do the business is quite incredible. It is incredible. And I got a taste of it. He came out recently for the Bushfire game a few years ago, yeah. Sachin, and came yeah. to the SCG. And I'd forgotten what a phenomenon he was. There was thousands of people there to see him. I did a little thing for him. He was an ambassador for the Bank of Scotland, the Royal Bank of Scotland. 
And he came out about oh, six or seven years ago and, and they actually approached me and said, look, he's coming to the SCG. We know that you know him. We want to tell him that, that Mike Whitney's going to be there just to chaperone you around the thing all day. So they had a, a, a cricket clinic on. <sighs> Man, these Bank of Scott people came from everywhere and the most of them were subcontinent people. He spoke to the kids, the younger kids he spoke like this, the teenage kids he spoke at another level. And the older kids that had come to see him, he spoke at another level. It was fascinating to watch this guy just move around and, and not manipulate the situation, but know exactly how to handle everybody. And at the end of the day, Andrew, he went, Mike, thanks very much for looking after me. I said, Satch, come on, man. I'm just cool hanging out for you with you for a day and, and getting paid as well. Right. <laughs> hilarious, yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break and I'll be back in a moment. Uh, welcome back. I'm here with former Australian quick, Mike Whitney. All right, so going back a bit, you know, you spoke about you came into the, the blue side in 1980. In 1981, you're overplaying a bit of cricket in England. Ian Botham decides to have an Ashes series for the ages. Wins a couple of matches from nowhere. You're probably, you know, at the pub watching it. Lo and behold, your old mate Jeff Lawson injured, Rodney Hogg injured, enter a 22-year-old 20, Mike Whitney who'd only played, what, four first-class games at the um, time, four or five? Uh, six. six. So that test was my seventh first-class seventh match. first-class match. So it was the fifth test of the series I think you came in. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was also the series that England uh, secured the Ashes that that was the match that England secured the Ashes. Yeah, but, I mean, I guess for a start, what was it like coming into that team that had just been bothered? Look, when I when a lot of guys had been had been going over to play league cricket in England, and when I got into first grade, there'd been a number of first graders that ran with Gary Bensley, Eric Higgins, Malcolm Brown, all these young country cricketers had come down. They'd all been to play in this one club. They'd been to at Fleetwood in the Northern League in Lancashire. So I went there. About a third of the way through the season, I had a buddy called Greg Geese who played for New South Wales, come from Newcastle, fine player. He was on an SA scholarship at Gloucestershire. And Mike Proctor, ooh, Mike Proctor and a seamer called Brian Brain. Now people go like this, who's Brian Brain? Like he took 2,000 <laughs> first-class wickets or something, just one of those runs. They got injured. They were looking for another quick to fill in for the rest of the season. And Geesey mentioned my name. So I went down to Gloucester had a trial, got signed on. This was huge to play a bit of county cricket. Mm. So I played two games for them and, and I still had to play for Fleetwood. So when I was not playing for Fleetwood, I was available for Gloucester. That was a Sunday league game, couple of first-class games. I'm sitting on the balcony at Cheltenham. We're playing Hampshire. They had Greenwich and Haynes in their 11. Uh, we had Whitney. <laughs> Brain. No, he was still injured. <laughs> uh, Zahir Abbas. Oh, yeah. And when I got pulled out of that game, Sadiq Muhammad, they had a couple of Pakistanis there and Zahir was just a wonderful player. Anyway, sitting on the balcony, watching Malcolm Marshall steam in. I'm batting 11, like 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 are all padded up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he was on fire. And the phone comes out and this voice goes, Michael, you're being selected to play for Australia. The test was starting pretty much the next day at Old Trafford and I thought it was a mate of mine 
Winding you up. Cheering me up. So I went, F off, imbecile, and slammed the phone down. <laughs> because in the paper, it had said that Lawson and Hogg were injured. Carl Rackerman was on an SA scholarship. They were entertaining him, but he was injured. Phone rang back, and the room attendant went, Oh, Mr. Whitney, it's the same fella. So I went, Good day. He went, Michael, this is Fred Bennett, <laughs> manager of the Australian <laughs> cricket team. And I'd known Fred here for a lovely human being. I went, Oh, he said, You've been picked in the squad because Henry and Hoggy are injured. Leave now and come up to the Grand Hotel in Manchester. Well, I thought, Wow. And Thank goodness I don't have to face Marshall. <laughs> yes. Two counts, got them pads off really quickly, got in the car and drove up. I mean, if you said to me, can you remember much about that drive up to Manchester? No. I I'm just must have been so spun out. Had you been following, like, had you been into the series? Like, oh, what? yeah, 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 yeah. So you'd and, been and, copping it from the Poms in the dressing Oh, yeah, room. well, we won the first test and then, yeah. and, at Law and then the test at Lords, Beefy got a, a pair mm. and got dropped as the captain. So it hadn't so been you're pretty good until then. It hadn't been Botham's Ashes for those first couple, and then Edge Baston and Headingley were just remarkable games. So yeah, all of the Australians that I knew that were playing cricket over there, we were all following it, and following it to a T. And those two things that happened at Edge Baston and Headingley, you know, Bob Willis got a hoop, but Beefy had done amazing things in both those tests, and I think it was the fact that they'd released this pressure off him. And old bloody Mike Brealey had come in, you know, a, a worker of men and all this sort of stuff. Professional captain. Yeah. Uh, so I, I drove up and got to the, the Grand Hotel, pulled up outside. Um, the concierge come out, concierge come out and said, oh, Mr. Whitney, um, Mr. Bennett and Mr. Hughes are waiting for you in this 252. Leave your car here. We'll look after it and we'll take your gear up to you. It's your a room. long way from the boy from Matraville. We started this podcast. Grand Hotel with Come the Aussie on, captain. Man. It was bizarre. So I went up and knocked on the door and Fred opened the door. He'd been involved with the Balmain Cricket Club here, cricket or New South Wales Cricket Association chairman, all this sort of stuff. So I apologised. Oh, Fred, sorry for swearing it. <laughs> he said, it's all right, son, come in. And Kim Hughes was sitting on the bed. And I'd only met him when I was 12th man for the game against Western Australia. He said, g'day, Michael. I said, oh, Kim, Kim, Kim. Mr. No, no, Kim, Kim, call me Kim. I said, call me Wit. <laughs> he looked at me and laughed. He said, you're playing tomorrow. That took a bit of time to absorb. Like, I bet. Yeah, seconds and seconds. I went, ha, 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 ha. He went, we've got enough people to carry the drinks, mate. We need a third seamer. And we've watched you play. And a couple of games I played, a couple of one-day games, which were 60-over matches. John Player League, 60-over. You bowled 12 overs. Took a lot of wickets in a few of those games and they'd been televised. So they knew I was fit, bought a lot of overs, and I was I was going okay. Uh, <laughs> you get any sleep? Well, this is how things change, Andrew, because you know, when Steve Waugh took over the captaincy, we then the numbers came out and the presentation of your baggy green and by someone on the field and, and how special that is. As Kim was talking me through what was going to happen the next day, Fred Bennett was into these cardboard boxes. Ah, there's your short sleever. Well, you better get two of them. And there's a long sleever and this, and there's a baggy green. So I just got thrown on. No, that was the way it was in those days. I got thrown all this stuff in the room. There was no ceremony. No, there was no, no nice, I, I you know, former fast bowlers coming out onto the field and making you feel good like they do now. It was didn't all... even know at the stage that everybody had a number. 
I mean, later when I found that out, I didn't know what my number was that day. Had no what idea. What is your number? 313. 313, lovely. Had no idea. But later... And then when Stephen bought all that stuff, you thought, it's really important. Why didn't we focus on that to celebrate those individuals? But it didn't matter at the time. So they then said, <laughs> here's your room key. Go up to your room. All your gear will be up there and we're going to have a, a um, media conference at, at 6 o'clock, which was only a few hours away, to tell them that you've been brought into the <laughs> 11 and you're going to play tomorrow. So I go up to this room and, I, in there, and there's all this gear in there and I'm, you're rooming with someone. No one got, only the captain got his room. And I'm looking and over in this beautifully crafted leather port in the corner, it says in gold letters, DK Lily. No. Mate, that, I went, no. Like, I, look, you, you got to understand this, Andrew. When I was growing up, I had posters of Dennis Lilly, Rod Marsh, Kim Hughes. You know, the World Series guys was a really big thing in the mm. back end of the 70s for someone my age. It just affected me. I thought, wow, coloured clothes under the lights at the SCG. I want to do that. It was magic. And then he walked in 10 minutes later <laughs> and I clearly remember standing to attention. Like you're in the yeah. army. <laughs> I didn't know what to do when he said, no, no, you're right, ma. Just call me DK and, you know, fight whatever you want to call me and, you know, you're right, mate, I'll look after you. And he did. He was just magical. Fantastic. And I remember him saying, look, if we bowl in the morning, mate, just remember you've got that emblem on. You're in the best 11 that's available for this game. So don't think you're just a roll in. You're in the best 11 that's available for this game. And just remember who you're playing for. You're playing for yourself, the team, and our country. Well, I didn't need any more than that, bro. That was it. I was, whoa, give me the ball. So, yeah, I, we, we bowled the next morning and I bowled first change after Lily and Alderman bowled the opening spells on this. The clouds were that there. Just above it. It was this Manchester Perfect. overcast, amazing day, and it was chock-a-block and half of Fleetwood where I'd played and was still playing had come to the ground. Do you remember your first test wicket? Oh, absolutely, I had him dropped, David Gower. He got dropped at first slip by Graham Wood and it flew. And I think Gower, well, I know because I'd asked him years later. He said, oh, yeah, I just want to come out and take you to the cleaners. Young bowler, <laughs> it's your seventh game. Get, get on top your, early. Get into you early and just destroy you for the rest of the game. So he had a go at one and he nicked it straight to first slip and Graham Wood and it flew. Graham Wood went like that. It went through his hands hit Graham Wood in the mouth. He went down and then he went off. <laughs> this is my second over. And then, but the first, look, the first over was very dramatic. I ran in. Kim, you know, just get this first one out, mate. This Kim here is the captain of Australia. I run in uh, to Chris Tavare and bowl the first one. He just sort of ekes it away to the leg side. And I thought, thank God for that. As I walk back, the rain starts. I feel these patters of rain on me, and then it pours. So you're off after one hour, ball. For an hour. And then at the end of that over, he nicks one. Basil Wood drops it, goes off the ground. This is a very – and, look, I've never had this looked at, but I would suspect that that is the longest debut over <laughs> ever bowled might be. In Test cricket history, wow. it went for an hour and five minutes, that one over with a drop catch and a dude going off. 
Anyway, a couple of overs later, he had another go at a, one that was a bit wide and went straight to Graham Yallop in the gully, who took the catch, and David Gower was out, caught Yallop Bowl Whitney, and this is David Gower. I mean, this is a dude I'd watched again growing up that had just destroyed attacks all around the world. Pretty happy with that one up oh, against bad. my name as my first wicket for sure. Oh, I remember it clearly. Yeah, Gower's one of my favourite um, English oh, players. Oh, so elegant. So the timing. Mark Warish, but in left-handed. Yeah. Just beautiful. He blocked boundaries like Mark War used to do. Made How a, can you block a boundary? I mean, unbelievable. Made 100 at the SCG in the early 90s when your mate Mo Matthews made one in that same game. And yeah. Remember just the way he hit through covers. Ah, uh, pure. Just, just pure. Yeah, beautiful to watch. So you got both of them again in that match. He made another 100. Australia lost by 103 runs despite an epic AB innings. So the Ashes are gone. I gather it wasn't that flash in the dressing room after that. They were happy. We weren't at all. And it was, yeah. Look, I was like a kid in a, in a candy shop. You was happy to be there. I just happy to be there, man, looking around. And I was very lucky there were six or seven New South Wales players on that tour, including Dirk Wellham, who made 100 in the sixth test on debut. So I had a few mates there, which, which made it much more comfortable. But look, as the time went away from that, which is really interesting to talk about, there was definitely still a World Series click and a Australian cricket board click. I didn't get it at the time, but I think about now that, yeah, all the World Series guys used to hang out over there at the bar and the other guys used to hang over here. I'd be jumping in between them, you know. Just, wow, it's, wow. But there was a definite. I can imagine you being everybody's friend in the team (sighs) environment. I was 22. I was, I couldn't believe it. It was surreal. Did you just have that aura about you? Like you've always, whenever I've, Watched you play, run into you when you ran week. You always, you know, exude such positivity. And I know in team environments that that is very much valued. You know, that's why you were such a great player, but, you know, so valued in the teams. Yeah, but that wasn't my role then in that test no, side. No, but, I was no. very much a minnow. But I'll tell you what I did do. I, big ears and big eyes. And I learned a lot just sitting there for the next, you know, I stayed with the team. There was probably a month, three and a half weeks to go. So I played that test and played a one day against Leicester, three day against Sussex at Hove, and then the last test. And then, believe it or not, Australia played Gloucestershire in a one day game before they went home and I played for Gloucester. And ran in and bowled and someone said, you're going a bit hard on us. <laughs> I go, you're on the other side today, bro. What are you talking about? <laughs> go easy. Yeah. Pitch it up. Uh, you, you mentioned the divide between the World Series and the, the non-World Series players. It also... I guess later on as your career went on, there was also the Rebel Tours that, um, you know, added a real element of division in the Australian cricket community. You know, how did you feel at the time? Everybody thought that after World Series cricket, it was really going to change. And that was just prior to my time. But it didn't really change. My first game in 1980 I got $100, 25 bucks a day, got taxed $12. So took home 88 bucks for four days of shore cricket. I would have played for nothing. But later on, I thought, how does Rick McCosker, he's got like three or four kids and he's got to have time off Doug Walters. How do they survive on this sort of money? So World Series cricket was supposed to change everything, but it didn't really change a lot. It's actually an excellent book by Dan Brettig. 
he released a couple of years ago that talks about the finances behind that, that although a lot of money was coming into the game after World Series, it actually wasn't filtering through to the players. And Not at all. When Alan Border retired in the mid-90s, maybe he was on 90, 100 grand a year, and he was the, you know, the legend of Australian cricket. That's why it was so important that the Australian Cricketers Association was born then, mm. just after AB retired number of the senior players got together and players who had just retired and created that so that the players had a voice and a negotiating voice because I can probably say now the players were ripped off for years and years and years. Oh, but, and but this book, Dan Brady wrote, the, 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 the had figures millions and millions of dollars Channel in their Nine was getting it all. The figures are <coughs> in this book that basically the ACB didn't know how to negotiate commercially. That's correct. So there was a lot of money coming in, but it wasn't going to them or the players. That's correct. It was it was a bummer. I mean, that's changed now. But I think it was John Rogers out of Western Australia who sniffed a rat and finally sorted yep. it out. Yep, JR's a good man. Uh, when the South African thing started being talked about or he heard about it in like 83, I actually got a call in England. I was proing over there in 83 in the Central Ranks League at Littleborough. I got a call at home gauging my interest. And I said, but anybody who goes on those tours, you're going to get banned for life for sure because it was still the apartheid regime and you got banned for life and that was it. So in the interim, which is a really crazy story, I'd met a South African girl on a Kentucky tour a year before that and we were writing letters to each other still and I quite fancied her and she fancied Romance. me. So I thought, well, this is a good opportunity to go and visit her but also check out the lie of the land as far as going to play cricket there. So I did. I went over there for about six weeks and travelled all over South Africa with this girl. Such a beautiful place. But I was stopped from going into a few places because I looked coloured and they had to speak on my behalf, this is, this is our friend from Australia, no, no, he's a white man and all this sort of stuff. And I found that very disturbing. I saw a South African policeman pull a whip on three coloured gentlemen because any more than two on a corner, it was not legal. And after that, I couldn't go there. So there's only two players that refused those contracts on that basis, myself and Viv Richards. I just couldn't go there where people of colour were being treated so despicably and disgracefully and because I'd been mistaken as a coloured person many times, even on the field, that I was sort of racially abused from fine leg, uh, you black so-and-so. Uh, no, man, I'm like Scottish, English heritage. So I knew what that felt like even though I'm a white fella and being abused at fine leg is not a very nice thing. No. Well, it's terrible. So I couldn't support that. But if those other guys were going, knock yourselves out because a lot of those guys had been treated very badly by the Australian Cricket Board and had not had any money or any remuneration and whatever and this was their chance to sort of cash up with their cricket career and some of those guys were at the end of their career. So they got a couple of hundred grand, I think, for going there. And the- Which I think at the time was equivalent of three or four houses. Oh, huge money. So... I mean, the thing that upset all the players here was that they were going to get banned and they did get banned. Then they got banned for two years and then they were all let back in. 
So there was a lot of players that ummed and ahed about that decision. Oh, now I want to stay and play for Australia and Test cricket and that. Who might have gone had they known? They might have gone had they known. So it's really, um, it was really badly handled again by the Australian Cricket Board. Fascinating story about your personal experience there. Yeah. And look, I do think, and this is not a judgment, it's just I do think those Rebel Tours look worse as the passage of time goes on. Not the players, because we've spoken about the economic situations. You can't begrudge someone, you know, putting groceries on the table. No. But um, just generally, I think around. Those tours look worse, and the treatment of the West Indies players that went on those tours mm. is a very sad story. Very, very sad story. The wicked keeper, what was his name? He he ended up on the streets. Yeah. A couple of those guys, they just got shunned because the West Indian people thought that they'd betrayed them by going to that country where if you're a coloured person in that country at the time, I mean, I told you, I went there and they looked at me. I got asked on a beach in Cape Town, you're on the wrong beach. Because I had really long, curly hair and was very suntanned at the time. Oh, man, this is, like, bizarre. Because when I was growing up, the South Africans were the bad guys. Like, they were, because of apartheid. Yeah. They were just the bad guys. Yeah. Um, Actually, they're they're really like us. They're really, really lovely people. I mean, they've got to live with that now forever, Mm. hanging over their head. But as you know, it's it's a black-ruled nation now. But as far as sport's concerned, they'll scrap you down to the last ball just like we will and then be the first ones to put a beer in your hand in the dressing room, have a huge laugh and then say, but I'll see you tomorrow with us at 11 o'clock and they're into it again. So we really respect that and I think they do as well. Great competitors. Definitely. All right, now we we talked about 1981. Now there was a little bit of a a gap there between your sort of test appearances after the 81 appearance and then sort of towards the end of the 80s and early 90s. And what were those intervening years like? You'd had a taste of the top level. Now you wanted to get back there. What was that like? There was a, a 18 months there where I didn't play much. I'd had successive knee operations and just couldn't really get that right. But about 85, I started to, to really slot back in. We won the Shield in 85-6, and I took six for in that Shield final against Queensland, and that was uh, physically and mentally a really big breakthrough for me because I really had to get my knees right. And from that moment on, I charged forward towards 1990 and hardly missed a game. I'd done enough to get picked in a test match in 87 uh, against New Zealand, and then I got cast into the wilderness again until I got picked to play a test match against the West Indies in 89. And both of those games <laughs> were really significant games, not only for Australia, but in my career. Well, certainly 87. 87, obviously. It's, so I've heard that, you know, when you run into the Kiwi players, they just try and avoid you after you blocked out the over and cost them <laughs> a series victory. Danny Morrison, Richard Halley, they all try and avoid you like the plague because I'm sure the first thing you do is remind them of that, that over. But, you know, famously batting out the last over to give Alan Border his first test series victories as captain. And at that point, he was at the end of his tether, really struggling in the job. Everyone's seen the iconic images of you and Craig hugging at the end, fist pumps, Kiwis dejected. Take us into what it was like out in the middle there. I thought we were going to win the game easily. 
my mother and sister were at the game. They flew home early because it looked like we were going to win the game so easily. And, well, not easily, but we were going to win the game. And then, of course, he wasn't Sir Richard. Then he was just Richard Paddles Hadley. And Danny take the new ball and get a couple. And I'd already packed because I'd been picked in the one-day series, which was going to start in Perth in a couple of days' time. So I'd packed all my gear up. I'm ready to rock and roll, get on the plane that night and fly to Perth. And, and then we start over there in the one-day series and another wicket, another wicket, another wicket. Deep breaths. Better go down and get the gear out. <laughs> Just make sure that next minute I'm padded up. Next minute I'm out there. We'd won the first test, I think, so we were one up. They had the Trans-Tasman Cup. If they bowl us out and, and win the match, it's one all. They retain the Trans-Tasman Cup. AB hadn't won a series. He'd been struggling for two seasons as the captain. He took over in 85 and went to New Zealand on that trip and nearly resigned. They sent Bobby Simpson over there to try and help him out. And he was struggling. And I remember as I walked out of the dressing room door, he was standing there. And I don't know, I just said, don't worry about it, Skipper. We'll get you through. Like, <laughs> yeah, sure. Oh man, it was hilarious. So I walked out, and oh, there was still a few people there, but not a huge crowd for the MCG. But like Richie Benno used to say about the the Tide Test, I've met two hundred thousand people that saw me block out Richard Hadley now, and there wasn't that many there. I was there. <laughs> So I walk out and, and Richard actually hits me here, first ball and a big LBW appeal. And then I get one down to fine leg and I think then there was one, two, three, four overs to go after that. And oh, the thing I couldn't work out because this, the, moved to the second last over, there was a couple of very close LBW appeals on Craig McDermott, really close LBW appeals. Very close. And the umpire at the non-strikers end with me was Dick French, the New South Wales umpire. So I'd, I'd known Dick for a long time at that stage. He'd done a lot of short cricket and he international umpire. And I remember there was one and I'm looking and I'm thinking, that's close. And Danny was on the ground. Yeah! Because they get this wicket, man. They win the test. It's one almost a draw. So I've sort of backed up a bit and turned around. I'm looking at Dick and his eyes just flashed to me like that. And he went, not out. <laughs> And I went, that's my man, Dickie. All right. It was very, <laughs> the very Kiwis close. weren't happy. I've asked Dick about that decision. Oh, the last time I asked him, well, I saw him a couple of years ago. I said, Dick, the test match in Melbourne against New Zealand and the second last over where Billy McDermott and that Danny Morrison LBW. And he, God love me, he goes, wit, it was very close. But in my opinion... It was not out. Okay, that's my man, Dick. <laughs> so I've always asked the question is how did someone with a batting average of five end up facing the last over? And I knew there was going to be no runs because Craig McDermott had taken his gloves off and he was sitting on his bat at the <laughs> other end. So he wasn't running that last over. And we managed to get through it. I managed to get through it. And that was another moment in my life that was – almost surreal because I'm not the bat me. I love, I tried to bat, just didn't happen. They'd thrown me five million balls, Steve Ward, John Dyson in the nets. Defence wasn't too bad at that stage, but so to do something with the bat against 
Sir Richard Hadley. <laughs> and the byline to that story was walking off the ground, Ian Smith handed me the ball and he said, you've done a great thing for Australians. There's a great photo of Richard with his hand around my shoulder. He said exactly the same thing. You've done a great thing for Australia today, Widow. Very proud. But Smithy gave me the ball. Years later, go by, and I'm sitting with Richard here in Sydney. He goes, you still got that ball that Ian Smith gave? I went, yeah. He said, well, out of my 36 five-wicket hauls, that's the only one I don't have. I went, bad luck. <laughs> Smithy bad gave luck. it to me. 2015, the World Cup's on in Melbourne. I knew they were all going to be there, and they were all at this in a Viv, Beefy, Richard, all of my old mates. And, and I went down there, and I presented that ball to him in front of that crowd, and he had a tear running down the side of his face, mm. and he put it in his fingers for that outswinger immediately, and he just looked at me in disbelief, and I'd had that ball for 28 years, a cricket ball. Now, the byline to that giving him back the ball was I got emails and letters from politicians in New Zealand saying, what a great thing you'd done, Michael, for trans-Tasman relationships (laughs) because I gave Richard Hadley back a ball that he'd made taking Pfeiffer with, and it was really his ball, but I had it in my possession for 28 years before I gave it back to him. It was just magical. It was a magic moment in both of our lives. That's beautiful. Yeah. Imagine Alan Border loves running into you. The Kiwis might not, but you and AB must have good memories. Yeah, that look, those first test matches that I played in in England, I actually got Alan through to 100 in one of those. And, you know, similar age. I mean, when we went to Sri Lanka, he's much more experienced than many guys. Some of the guys on that tour had, had played a lot more than me, but he knew I'd been around the traps and, we get to Colombo Airport on that Sri Lankan tour and he goes, Widow, Roy, Roy. I was the first Roy before Roy Simons came along. He said, I want you to room first with Shane. It was Shane's first overseas trip. He said, Shane's going to room with you, all right? I went. So this is early 90s. This is the coming of age for Shane Morn when he t- takes those three wickets, your mate Moe's at the other end. AB takes a, an amazing running catch, actually, to turn that Aravinda game. Aravinda De Silva That's threw it. his hat and his glasses off, took it running backwards. They were going to win. They only need 160 to win. The whole crowd, the ground was packed that day and they just sang these Sri Lankan victory songs all day and we bowled them out. And I was rooming with Shane at that moment. AB said, you're his first roomie. Teach him, the, teach him, teach him everything. Tell him what it's like to be on tour in an Australian team, what we expect from him. And so this you're was, to blame. <laughs> this was mullet, cigarette, yeah. all this, baked beans, it was this time. And it was magical. Well, you don't realise then, but as Shane's career moved on, you go, man, I, I roomed with him in his mm. first tour and I watched him develop into what was just something so special. And this is what I loved about Shane. I didn't get to see him much later on in life, just when we crossed paths and he would always come up, put his arms around me and say, Big Roy, thanks for looking after me in Sri Lanka. You taught me a shitload. For humble little 12-test Mike Whitney, that meant a real lot and he never forgot that with anybody, Shane. That was one of his great strengths. He remembered the people that just took him under the wing and said, listen, bro, you can't do that on the field. It's shit. People." Don't like that. You don't have to. Just get the guy out. Don't have to send him off. But, of course, he became an expert at all that later in his career and I wasn't going to tell him later, don't do that because he loved that theatre, you know. 
But it's it's interesting, you know, since Shane's passing, a lot of people talk about Shane, about, about him being very loyal yep. and he was a larrikin and yep. he loved to have a good time, but he knew who his friends were. He was a great teammate. He always had you back. Yep. Um, you know, even All of those things, yeah. And, and even I would say, you know, he was sort of a new generation, that superstar cricketer that came in. Even the older blokes or the, the managers and the people that had to look after him only said good things about him. I think when he arrived, you know, a bit tubby, mullet, you know, a bit of a lad, we were all like that. But to watch that that kid develop into the man, the cricketer, the status that he gained, the reverence that he gained, the ball of the century, how many games did he win for Australia? Great competitor, never beaten, never beaten. The last ball, I'm going to get you out and we're going to win this game. Never been. And the people that he played with, particularly Glenn, the war twin, Stephen, Stephen knew exactly. AB was retired, but he was starting to understand Shane and how to use him. Tubby, then Stephen, and then Ricky. They knew. They watched what Tub and Stephen did <laughs> with him and how potent he was and how... I mean, I played a lot of shield cricket against Shane. He was into you from ball one. So competitive. And said, I'd come in 11. I mean, this one game at the SCG in attorney. He said this, Roy, I'm going to bowl this one and then that one and then on the you're going to get out the third ball. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> bowl me. <laughs> Even though you knew it was going. What? Yeah, that's it. You told me what you were going to do and I'm still out. You know, and we laughed about it and that, that was just Shane. Fantastic. Terrific stuff. More with Mike Whitney after the break. Uh, welcome back. I'm Menes, and you're listening to Menes Masterclass and I'm here with Mike Whitney. You mentioned playing against the West Indies in 88, 89. Yeah. So famous summer. Well, what test match did you play in that series? Fifth test. So is that the one at the SCG? No, or? was it Adelaide Oval? Ah, the... The great Dino made a double ton. Merv, Merv got 72 70, or something. And about 70 bruises. <laughs> oh, um, in the shower after that night. I was standing <laughs> in the shower. It was covered and I kept going, is that one sore? What about that one? I was digging my thumb into Wallam. He was, oh, yeah. You said 70 bruises. Oh, yeah. He was just covered in bruises. I remember the Daily Telegraph had a photo at the time. He, they just give it. And he got made. He played really, really, really well. And Dino got a double hundred, yeah. Um, and then, you know, you went on the 91 tour of the West Indies. Now, imagine playing the West Indies. It was fun off the field. Touring the West Indies would have been great. Very difficult on the field. Test tour, 91, two matches, no wickets. Yeah. 88-89, they towed Australia up, I think, 3-1 in the series. They were the complete package at the time. Yep. Not just four fast bowlers, but they had eight fast bowlers. So if one was injured, yep. they just wheel another one in. They had 20. <laughs> yeah, and then they had, you know, the, uh, Greenwich, Haynes, Richards, Richardson. Just, just Logie, off, Hooper, just, And then Dujon, you got Dujon yep. at seven who'd score 100 if the others had missed yep. out. So it was like un, unstoppable force. What was it like walking onto the field? I mean, you're a big guy. I can't imagine you being physically intimidated, but, I mean, they had a presence that really very unique in world cricket history. 
it was Sabina Park, Kingston, Jamaica back then was the original Sabina Park. It's changed a bit now. They were old wooden stands. The hanging off the rafters. Oh, yeah, man, and, and very aggressive. Guns just smoke floating and across. And drinking, you know, rum out of the bottle on the hill and music and dancing all day. Every time one of their guys bowled a bouncer, anything short through here, the crowd just erupted. So it was very, very intimidating. The conditions were very tough. The wickets were like rolled mud. And I remember the morning of that first test match, there was a bit of a wet patch on the wicket. You know, and AB and every swampy mass is out there, Captain Vice, we all come out and with the wet patch on the wicket. The groundsman went and got a can of fuel, tipped it over the wet patch, said to everybody, move back, move back, move back now, move back now, and lit it up. <laughs> so some of the guys got photos, this is like two hours before the day's play, of this dude, and it wasn't dry. More back, more more petrol on it. More back, more back. Lit it up again. Then the wicket's on fire. We played on it that day. It was rock hard. I think one game they like bought a helicopter over there. Crazy, the, yeah. To dry the yeah. The but it was it was. Look down at fine leg. I realised very early if you didn't do a little hip dance with the music or entertain them in some way. They'd start throwing rocks at you. Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's pretty intense then. So I started, yeah, yeah, Whitney, he's waning. You know, if you do this hip dance, I call it whining. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wanted to be as friendly as I could with him. But, yes, that was was super aggressive. You know, like the second string bowlers on that tour for them were like uh, Ian Bishop and um, Tony Gray and Ezra Mosley. Patterson. These guys, the second stringers. like, And they bowled like the light. The wind maybe just weren't as... They weren't 10 out of 10. They were nine and a half out of 10. Even the the games that we played in between the test matches, some of the young bowlers we'd never heard of and they just ran in and bowled like the wind. And conditions can be tough. The food sometimes can be hard. We're talking about 30 years ago now. A little, very different. Yeah, and what was Viv like? I mean, bowling to Viv, I mean, what was that like? You know, you worry the ball's going to come back at you harder than you delivered it at him. Yeah, look, he was just something very different, never wore a helmet, backed himself, could hit the ball out of the ground with those little match sticks they were using back then. Could you imagine how far him and Beefy and these guys could hit the ball now with these massive bats that you've only got to get the timing right and it goes 10 rows back? So dominating. His his stance and his aura at the wicket chewing the gum with the hat just on a bit of a side, almost like without saying a word, bring it on. And he would take you on and he would destroy you if he could. I was lucky. I got him out a couple of times over the years. And AB used to say this to us all the time. He generally gave you a chance. <laughs> but I, all, every other captain in the world go, don't drop that first chance. And, of course, <laughs> then everybody's hands go like, iron, <laughs> um, um, out. And Viv just went on from there. And was brutal. I can imagine, like, you bowling to Viv, his great talent was, so as as you just drifted a little straight, he'd just work you on the onside. So you go, oh, let's just move a bit out, and then he'd just smack you through the covers. And That's right. Yeah, I'd bowl a short one, and he'd straight when, pull you. When we've talked about a couple of the greats of all time today, Sachin, um, we haven't mentioned Brian, Lara, but Viv, the margin for error, you know, you, you've got to be on that little box. If you're inches outside that box, they're going to whack you. Where 
the next standard of player, who's still a really good player, you can be the box is a little bit bigger and the margin for errors a little bit bigger. But with those guys, you know, sometimes they block a ball, you go, right, that's where I need to be, and you buy one exactly the same spot, and they hit that over your head. So they've conned you into thinking, oh, yeah, that's where you need to be, block, 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 boom, 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 and then you really get messed up going, well, I've been to bowl it there, well, where do I bowl it? So they're playing with your head all the time, and that's what you're trying to do to them. But the great players are masters at it, and, well, oh, Viv was just something special. Viv was amazing, amazing. Then after the game, a lot of fun in the dressing room. Mo Matthews and I became very, very good friends with Viv. I, I think he sort of saw a bit of West Indian sort of in me and just thought Mo was crazy. Loved that machos, loved that machos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mo's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Mo. I'll never forget when I was a kid bowling at the Nets in grade level, he would always come to the Nets and work with the kids without fail. Every grade session. Yep. Didn't have to be asked. Yep. He's been very good like that. And would taught me how to bowl off spin. Charity. Yep. Um, and if you look at his record, particularly for New South Wales, he's the greatest player New South Wales has ever had, statistically. Runs, wickets, catches, captain. Test batting average over 40. Unbelievable. Yep. Right, so West Indies, that was hard. I mean, that was a real torment. Like that era that you played through, I mean, it was, you know, obviously it wasn't through to the mid 90s. We got that famous win. Yeah, 95. Imagine, imagine yeah. you on the sidelines, like Cheering. every yeah. former cricketer. That was the coming of Glenn McGrath, too. Yeah. yeah. So towards the end of your career, big, I mean, disappointing for me was you weren't picked in the 89 Ashes squad. Mm. I thought, you know, I remember at the time there was a bit of chat around that. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was, you know, if you ask me about that, I was. Bitterly disappointed at the time. I I played that one test against the West Indies in Adelaide and taken seven for 89 in the first innings, two for in the second innings. And if you read the stats about that game, there were only 14 West Indian wickets taken in the match and one was a run out. I took, I took nine. Trevor Hons took two. And Tim May took two. Merv and Billy McDermott did not get a wicket in that match. But I took nine, including a seven for. And I just couldn't believe that I'd knocked all of them over on a flat. We got 500 in the first innings. So all, everybody went, oh, how's it going to be ball on this deck? Well, I took seven for 89 off 30 overs. I was just in a slot ready to rock and roll. And by the end of the season, I'd taken something like 55 or 57 first class wickets. I was a leading wicket taker in Australia by the length of the straight. And prior to that, Every leading wicket taker in Australia prior to the Ashes tour was picked, but I broke that mould. I didn't get picked. Uh, Greg Campbell went. Yeah, from Tassie. Yeah. Um, and Greg yeah. Campbell was a very, very good bowler. Very good bowler. Yeah, very Quite good nippy. bowler. Had a falling out with Tasmania, but moved to Queensland. Played there. Had a falling out with them, and subsequently retired. And I was still going. Mm. So. Yeah, I was very disappointed. I was I was pretty dirty at the time, I've got to say. With I was disappointed the too. Four, the 4 nil result over there did make me feel better. Absolutely. And that's all I said in the press. Good luck to the boys. I hope they win. But that was the coming of Steve Waugh and a couple of Tubby. Players. Tubby. And I'd played with these guys for New South Wales and I knew how good they were. Henry had a good series. Henry had a great series. And they just had to click. And Stephen and Tub, Henry did. They all, they were all my mates. I'd been playing for New South Wales for nine years at that stage. I knew the game. I was professional. I was fit. Understood it in my head. 
So a lot of people said, oh, you're going to retire? I went, no, no, no. No, I'm going on the West Indies tour in two years' time. And you did? And I did. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, it's interesting. I, I remember Dean Jones was talking about his um, – when he was dropped and you know, people thought that was unfair and he said in later years before he passed away that you can say it was unfair but in the end the Australian team went on to have great success yeah. after I was left out. So yeah. whether that was unfair or not, the selectors did their job. Last, you know, last little, you know, real great sort of foray at international cricket was the 1992 World Cup. I think this is a, you know, it was a disappointing campaign for the Aussies, but, um, you know, you were the leading wicket taker, the most economical bowler for Australia in the World Cup. Very good campaign for you. Um, I've, I've spoken to AB about it, that the team probably, they probably weren't quite focused enough, not the play, but... Got a bit distracted by all the stuff at home, you know, being a home World Cup. Um, what are your memories of that World Cup? Mine are only bad, like getting smashed at the SCG by England and South Africa um, as a very youngster. But for you, what a triumph. Home World Cup leading wicket taker towards the end of the career. What a way to sort of put a little cherry on top. Yeah, I'd sort of looked at that, you know, 89, 90. I'd love to play in that a World Cup at home. What a fantastic thing. And I was on fire at the time. I was really bowling well. I'd, I'd had a, a great summer against India in the tests I'd played and and got picked in that squad and it was just magical. I mean, we all went down to Sydney Harbour and had a photo on this big destroyer, this boat, you know, World Cup dinner and all that. And we travelled to Auckland and played the first game after that and I was left out. I was left out of the playing 11, and we got beat. Martin Crow made a beautiful 100. Oh, man, that was just one of the best knocks I'd ever seen in my life. Deepak Patel opened the bowling that he broke did. everyone's That's brain. That's right. They come up with this new strategy that had never been seen before, a spinner opening the bowling. Marty was just, oh, he was a great player anyway, but that day he was just in complete control. And I played every game after that and bowled pretty well in most of those games. But I think in assessing what had happened, we really didn't have a lot of time to prepare. We were coming out of that test series. Long summer. Long summer. Very tough campaign. We lost against New Zealand, England, South Africa, Pakistan, I think in Perth. Just couldn't get, you know, in those tournaments you need to get that momentum rolling and we just couldn't get rolling. And, and we tried really, really hard, but we just could not get the momentum rolling. So as far as a World Cup on your own dung heap, was very, very disappointing that we didn't play better in front of our home crowds, our family, our friends, stuff like that. But for me, yeah, it was a huge triumph mentally for me. It was a, a really satisfying for me. I just felt you now you'd work so hard. Like a culmination moment. of the years of service. I'd been playing for 12 years at that time yeah. and the body was starting to sort of just you get knew a there bit wasn't sore. much left. That's so. right. That's right. Um, uh, ironically, on this podcast, one of our last guests was Wazi Makram. And, the great Wazi. Uh, the great Wazi wow. Makram, uh, you know, one of the best left-arm picks uh, ever, if not the best. Yeah. I did read that you two had a blow-up in the 92 World Cup. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you patched things up since then? Yes, good friends. Uh, and with, uh, was it Moen Khan, the wicket yes, keeper? Yeah. yeah, they had, um, oh, who was their wonderful leg spinner? Mushtaq. Mushtaq. Yeah, I think it was Mushy Bowling. Played and missed it this one. They all... Went, went up, up, appealed. 
And I just didn't know whether I'd hit it or not. And it was a South African umpire. He said, not out. So Moe said, you're a cheat. You're cheating. Uh, don't call me a cheat. <laughs> no. So I, Henry had his gloves up and I slapped his wicket-keeping glove and everybody thought I decked him on the ground. <laughs> and Wazzy run in and said, hit me, hit me. I said, you take another step, I'll knock you out, right? So, and Imran was captaining. So we'd played with Imran in 84-5. Imran's going, wit, settle down, wit, come on, Wasim, settle down. (laughs) And I got fined and Moen didn't. (laughs) Uh, Well, what a, you know, one thing in our chat that's really, you know, jumped out to me is the amount of these big characters that you've been lucky enough to play with. Yeah. Mentioned Imran Khan in New South Wales, both and Richards. I mean, what a privileged career. I mean, I know you probably, like everyone, you want to play more Test cricket, but just, the, the the experiences you had were just elite. The further away from my career it gets, the more surreal those things seem. The selection in eighty one seems like a a dream, a movie that was made, and I was the lead it is character a movie. It playing could be it. A movie. Is. Playing with Imran. You could see it starting in Matraville. And I <laughs> I didn't play much in eighty four five. I was still recovering from injury, but was still hanging out a lot with the team. Emmy was just. Well, we nicknamed him Ace. Mo Matthews named him Ace. He was the ace in our pack and he bowled and batted for us like he was playing for Pakistan and we won the Shirl. And his contribution was massive and we've always remained friends and the only time that I haven't spoken to him basically is the last 10 or 15 years when he's been the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister and in jail and, and being arrested. Oh, it's, I know, it's insane. My sister says sometimes, Oh, have you heard about Imran? I go, I'd love to ring him and tell him we're still mates, <laughs> but I don't want to risk the phone call. I know, unbelievable, yeah. Um, look, Mike, you've been great with time. As I said to you before, we could go on for hours, even about your post-playing career, but it, just a couple of things I want to touch on before we wrap this up. You know, we've, we've touched on your reverence for the baggy blue. So you won three Sheffield Shields as a player. New South Wales four, won four. I think, Andrew. Four. I think four. Four as a player. Yeah. Five in your time. So in your era, the, the Blues were really dominant. Um, the last was in 92, 93. Yeah. Like I know you're very proud of what the Blues means. Uh, and I know you're also, you know, part of the, back, you know, forming the New South Wales Past Players Association. Yeah. I think, and I'm biased like you, but, you know, New South Wales cricket is one of the, the most important cricket organisations in the world. Yeah. And you've been at the heart of it. Can you just take us into, you know, what that blue heart means? You don't really know when you first get picked. I mean, you're playing for your state and you know that's a great honour and you know all the people that have come before you. But what does it actually mean? Well, very early in my career, I heard Peter Philpott, who was my first coach and also my first coach in the Australian side, say this about New South Wales cricket. New South Wales cricket is the greatest state province or county in the history of cricket anywhere in the world. Our record says that. We've won 20 more Shields. I think we've got 48 or 9. Victoria's got 28. We're 20 in front. I don't know whether anybody will ever catch that up. hope not. Me too. Also, we've had the greatest players come from this state. Now, that's not saying there are other great players. Bradman. Bradman, O'Reilly. All of these guys. We've had the most test captains. We've had the most test players come from this state. So when you put all that historical records together, you've got to say cricket 
in New South Wales is very special. But when you play and you start to understand how deep that goes, then you start to really bleed blue and you realise that without your club, which for me was Randwick, but it's now Randwick Petersham, I don't have the chance to play for New South Wales. So I have reverence back there. And, and just Randwick was everything to me. But you can't play for Australia without this next step. And if you don't get tutored properly, trained properly, understand, believe, all these things that you get taught at that next level playing for New South Wales, you're not going to move up to play for Australia. And that's the boyhood dream. But, man, we bleed blue now. Look, I'll give you one example. New South Wales didn't win a game last year. They had five losses and five draws. I'm not going to bag any of the players. I'm not going to bag anybody there. But I never thought in my lifetime that I would see a season go past when New South Wales didn't win a first-class game. Everybody that I've spoken to about it from my era is just in shock and bleeding. We talk about things, has the Sheffield Shield been diluted because of T20 cricket or one-day cricket? Is it as important as what it was when we played? My opinion on that is the real game of cricket, the most satisfying game of cricket, goes over days, not overs. If you can't bat long, bowl long and field long, you shouldn't be playing Sheffield Shield cricket or test cricket. That's what it's about. It's a test of your... It's a test over a long period of time of your physical strength, your mental strength, your, your mental concentration. You've been hit 70 times like Merv did that day and he's still out there. A lesser man would have walked off three hours ago. That's why it's called test cricket. It tests everything that you've got. Shield cricket is very much like that and we're the only competition that has a five-day shield final, the only domestic five-day game in the world. These are monumental games. We need to revere that more. And the players need to understand that you don't have one-day cricket or T20 cricket without first-class cricket. That came first. First-class cricket. Long cricket. This is the pure form of the game. So that's what we played for, and we played one-day cricket, but that was not as... It was no, it's a big gap. The first class cricket and, and, and test cricket was what you wanted to play. We didn't win a game in the Shield last year. I didn't think I'd ever see that in my lifetime. Man, we're all bleeding. Mm. All the baggy blues, the old fellas are bleeding. I hope the guys in the squad are bleeding because I wouldn't like to say that in one season that I played for New South Wales, we didn't win a game. I'm really lucky that I don't have to say that. We had, that hadn't happened for 100 years. Yeah, hopefully that is the catalyst for a bounce back. I really hope so. Did you follow all those games last year? Yeah, I commentated, they, I commentated well, on some of them. I you know then they them. had an opportunity to win some of those games and couldn't put yeah. the sword in. Why is that? I'm not going to bag him. My only observation from it was that where is the, the, the real shrewdness, as, especially with the batters. I thought the bowlers stuck at it, but the batters like, I'm just, you're just not going to get me out. Like if I'm playing this flashy cover drive and it's getting me out, I'm just going to put it away because I want to average more than 25 at shield level. 
And and if you know Steve Waugh, if he he put a, he put the pull shot away for the rest of his career because he was getting out to it. Now, where is that from the players? Like that single mindedness. And I said to you on our phone conversation, Gavin Robinson, where you were sitting, say the players, great coaches, whatever. You got to take responsibility you for that take. performance That's when you it. go out there. It's your responsibility. You need to assess the situation and go, shit, we're three for fifty. In the first session, I need to bat till stumps. You're going to be here at stumps. You're going to have to carry me off. So it doesn't matter if I get 50 between now and then. We've got all day tomorrow to bat as well. If we're, but, but now there's this attitude, oh, no, you can't do that because I've been taught you've got to dominate the bowlers mm. and play shots. And, and well, you, you can dominate to, the bowlers, wear them out. Make them bowl for two hours. I guarantee they'll be easy to hit after I that. I spoke to Len Pascoe a couple of weeks ago. Plenty he good. said to me, if we were playing now and I bowled an, uh, uh, a maiden and you bowled a maiden and then I bowled a third maiden, they'd be swinging at you in the fourth over in grade cricket. He was just talking about grade cricket. I went, yeah. He said, but you know guys like John Dyson playing grade cricket, and I played with Dyson at, at Ramwick, he would bat till lunch and be 30 not out because he knew he'd get more in the, in the second session and he knew those grade bowlers were going to be tied in the last session and he was just going to work them all over the ground and end up with 80, 90 or 100 by the end of the day. Mm. He knew that. Now you bowl three or four maids in a row, they, want, they need to swing, get a boundary, get a six, swing. And that's not the game that you play in long cricket. Long cricket, you've got to bat long, bowl long and field long. And I don't know whether they train to do that now. But we used to bowl in the nets for an hour. Alan Davidson told me when I first got in the side, and he was a wonderful mentor for me, he bowled for two hours in the net nonstop. Wow. Now you can only bowl 25 deliveries. Or, and have a rest. What, what is it? Mm. How do you work on this? And you, your stamina, your bowling fitness, when you only bowl 20, overs, uh, 20 deliveries in the nets. It's, I don't know whether it's, Love hearing the passion, though. I love hearing the passion about the Blues because I think it's, you know, it's so important, um, you know, domestic cricket, flowing down to great cricket. <sighs> Andrew, you know, this is my state. Mm. I grew up in Sydney. I grew up in Matraville, in the South Sydney end of the eastern suburbs. I played for my local club, Randwick, and only played for that club. But I guess for the listeners out there they might not know, you're the chairman of... President. President, President of Randwick Peterson, yeah. So still intimately involved. Well, I'm lucky enough to commentate, so I see you down there at yeah. the games and supporting it. So, you you know, you put your money where your mouth is. You know, you you live it. You know, a lot of people can say it, but but you live it. Yeah, look, that's why I went back to Randwick and then we merged to become Randwick Petersham. But without those guys, I don't get to play for the Blues. And there's a lot of help, as I said, at, at the next level, but... I'm a New South Wales person. I grew up in Sydney. I grew up in Matraville. I'm a diehard. Everywhere I go, people go, oh, where are you from? I'm a blue, mate, New South Wales. I watch the state of origin. Think I'm barracking for Queensland? No. <laughs> Not even when we're going bad. Because I'm a blue and I'm really proud of that and I'm proud to have represented my state. And, and I, we all felt like that when I was playing. I know they feel like that now. But when you're playing for your state, it's only about one thing. Winning. Winning. That's it. Winning and beating these other sides and flogging them that bad in four days that they're going to remember that when you play them in the second round halfway at the back end of the season. Winning. You don't play at that level. You don't play grade cricket, and particularly when you start playing third, second, first grade. You don't play for New South Wales and you don't play for Australia 
unless your sole mentality is to go out there and win mm. the game. That's it. You play to win. That's it. I need to it. get you in there at the Blues training. Fire them up. Be happy to go out there. <laughs> That's another thing I can't understand. There's Henry, Len Pascoe, myself, Mo, McGillar, all these people. We'd go out there tomorrow and talk to the team. Now you're going to ask me if I've ever been asked. Not for years. That's yeah, interesting. Hopefully Shippy. Uh... Well, I, I think sometimes the coaches don't want the old ex-players moving in on their territory. But I wouldn't do that at all. No, because it's interesting you say that because I've often thought that one of the things that really fueled Australian cricket, and we'll wrap it up now because I've kept you for far too long, but that the shared intelligence that is passed through from the great players. Now, I was really lucky. I you know coached and played. Mainly coached with some, you know, Doug Walters and Peter Philpot and Barry Knight and Lenny Pascoe. And so I was lucky enough to be the recipient of that knowledge. But it's, it, it's the sort of knowledge that it, it's almost in that traditional uh, tribal sense. You need to just talk amongst yourselves to pass it on. You can't get it from a book. No, no. And there's, there's so, all of the people that I played with in that 1980 to 1994, were so passionate about playing for New South Wales. And we die for each other out there on the field. We spilled blood on the SCG. Mm. I mean, that was our dung heap. In the 14 seasons I played for New South Wales, I can only remember losing two games at the SCG. Wow. That's it. Had a couple of draws where we just survived. But when teams come to the SCG, we were almost impossible to beat there. And they would factor that in. Oh, and we'll go to Sydney. They'll win outright, or we might. They might we'll pick, pick two, two spinners and yeah. pick three. And... But then when we went to Perth, they bounced the shit out of us mm. on a wicket that was, and yeah. we struggled a little bit over there. So you tried to even it up, but we were just un, unbeatable on the SCG. I don't know whether they think about that now. You know, we play a lot of games out in the bush now, so you lose that home ground advantage. But I hope the young fellas there in the squad coming into the next season. Think about last season. I'm sure they will. I hope some of us get asked to go out there. I played against Shippy. Man, he was a tough dude to play against. He was he could bat all day for fifty, not be worried about it. Slowest first class hundred, I think. Oh, mate, he was just he he was amazing. Four thousand minutes. Concentration was. But that that that's why. Where's the cricket IQ? Like, you know, like for example, I think there's like you talk about your experience playing in the Lancashire leagues. A lot of Australian batters would go to the Lancashire leagues. And it was actually a learn about the craft of building an innings. Oh. Andrew, I remember clearly in the three or four seasons I played in the Lancashire Leagues, a couple of games I could only run from here to the corner because the wickets were that wet and there was sawdust everywhere and it was just going, not doing a thing. And this when the learn. test first class cricketer yeah. and some guy with a, a belly who's had 57 pints in the last week comes out. A couple of curries the night before. And they go, mate, he's going to whack you today. And he whacks you all around the ground. You go, who is this dude, man? But the conditions suit them. So you really had to learn how to bowl on these. And he weapons. would know what shots he can play on That's those pitches. He would know what education. shots he have to play. Yeah, yeah. On the first 20 runs, I'm just going to hit here and here and get my eye in. Well, I think more now there's this reverence to go and play T20 cricket, but I can understand that too, man. The, rewards, the checks that they're mm. handing out. You know, Cam Green last night got 100. That's put him into the final, I think. Put him into the finals indeed and the, I think $3 million a season for him. Well, my son asked me, do you think he'd be under pressure earning $3.2 million for six weeks? 
I went, yep, wouldn't you? Every time you go out there, you've got to do the business. But for him, oh, man, that kid is just something really special, bat and bowl. What a, what a, what a bonus to have someone come on second or third change, bowl 140 and give it to people. But his batting's extraordinary. I was thinking about Cameron Green this this morning after the 100. I actually interviewed yeah. him on this podcast. It was a 47 ball 100 or yeah, something. Yeah, 100 not out of 47 balls. Yeah. Brilliant. I watched it. And I, I was I interviewed him on this podcast a couple of years ago. And what struck me at the time was a very quiet, yeah. understated confidence. Yeah. That he always knew he was going to be successful. But he's not bragging. He's not big-headed. Like he would say things like, I know it's going to take me a couple of years to get to my best at top level. There was no doubt there that he would get there, but it was just he knew, okay, I'm not going to hit test level and nail it. It might take me a little while. And that sort of intelligence and quiet confidence, I think, will really see him achieve at the highest level. And even to have that maturity of understanding that test cricket is just this other level. Mm. It doesn't matter how much first-class cricket you play. You add one day onto that and play five days. That last day is so tough. You've given everything and you've got to give again on the last day. But every time he plays and I watch him play, he seems to be learning. I can see it all calculating in his head and he's putting it all in the memory, storing it all away. And I'm going to make this statement about him. He could be one of the greatest all-rounders that's ever played the game by the end of his career, given let's hope he doesn't get injured or doesn't do this, doesn't do that. But what? And you said, right, his demeanour, he's almost not embarrassed about where he is, but very humble, very quiet, opposite to Shane. But Shane needed that other side of him to... That's part of yeah, him. part of him where Cameron's like really understated, doesn't say anything, just whacks, gentle the, giant. just whacks the ball and bowls 145 when he yeah. wants to. Yeah, no wonder he's quietly confident. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I said it before, we could do another hour and a half on just your post-playing career. Yeah, we haven't talked about the telly or anything. Because, you know, yeah. when I talk to a lot of um, – you know, people that are a bit younger than me who didn't see you play, they go, who dares wins and all these yeah. great achievements yeah. um, that you did after playing. So congratulations on a, a fantastic life lived. And, you know, the I've seen it, the immense contribution you give back. So uh, thank you. Thanks for coming on this podcast. And it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me, Andrew. It's been a pleasure to be here. And, look, all I can do is thank Cricket for finding me when I was a young man because without that and being able to play and do all the things with cricket, I wouldn't have had that second part of my life. So I'm just glad that the great game found me and just so humbled to have, have contributed. All started with that day where you took four for because your mum told you to Park, turn up. That's right, with Randwick fourth grade, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you, mate. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. <laughs>